Welcome back to Coming In Without Context. Uh, this is the special 12th episode because we wanted to keep the episodes in pairs of three and we were missing a third episode. <laughs> uh, we're, we're joined by a special guest, although I guess every guest is special. And she, well, you've been here before, so are you... <laughs> I guess I'm a little less special. special or? Yeah, I would say I'm probably a little less special now. Okay. Or maybe I'm really special because I'm the first person to be reinvited back. Yeah, that's what I was gonna. I was wondering. <laughs> I guess up to you guys as the hosts. Yeah. Well, um, I'm here. My name is Dylan, and Hope is also over there. Yep. <laughs> and today we are going to do um, something we haven't done before, but makes sense with the structure of this. Um, we're going to review some movies that we saw recently. So, uh, spoilers ahead for Pig, uh, starring Nicolas Cage, directed by Michael Sarnowski, and also The Green Knight, directed by David Lowry, starring Dev Patel. So, I guess starting off, um, we'll do, like, scores, like, ratings. So, uh, Josie, what did you think of Pig? Like, general thoughts, and what would you rate it, or would you recommend it? The rating is is tough, because in the context that we saw it in, I would give it a really high rating. But the context that we saw it in is that we went and saw a matinee on Wednesday, so we were the only ones in the theater. <laughs> and that made it really fun, because we could, like, you know, we were in a movie theater setting, so a huge screen, like the surround sound and everything, but we could also like audibly react to it and make jokes and like put our feet up on the seats in front of us. So there was like that sort of really casual atmosphere about it that made it a really fun movie to watch because there were points where it's sort of like, I can't not laugh at what's going on. Like, I can't tell if this is serious or not. And I like that. Right. I, tell. Um, I guess separate the experience from the movie. Okay. I don't know. I'm a fan of uh, a cheesy movie, and I think this falls under that category. I feel like I would give it like a like a seven or an eight out of ten. Okay, that's okay. Yeah. <laughs> oh, what would you give it? Not that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a solid five or six. All right. Do you have any? Would you like to expand on uh, your general initial thoughts, Hope? Um. No. <laughs> Dylan, you're with your rating of pig. Okay. Okay. Well, first I want to add the the like context slash disclaimer that we saw this like three weeks ago, right? So um I honestly I probably I think we're it's probably more around hope score. I'll give it a six. I'll be mm-hmm. the middling guy since Josie gave it a higher score and then Hope gave it a lower score. So let's just let, let's just say the average was a six, okay, six out of ten. That's fair. Um, as to general thoughts, so I, it was watchable. It wasn't a terrible <laughs> film. And, like, the production value was pretty decent. Yeah. The, I guess the first topic I wanted to touch on was that the cinematography was very bland, in my opinion. Mm. Because the entire thing, you get this very tight shot. Like, they, they do the, the, the focus on the characters, um, and most of it's dialogue, right? There's no, it's not an action film, obviously. Mm-hmm. And actually, that's another thing we should touch on. Um, but 
yeah, the entire film, the entire cinematography is basically just consisting of like the tight close-up shots of characters during dialogue um, and even when they're walking around. So overall, that was kind of bland for me. I, I agree with you. I do think they could have broken it up with some more, some more variety in, in the way that they filmed it. But I do understand why they kept it to tight shots because I think we discussed this right after we saw the movie. It was very much like a character study. Like the plot itself, I don't even know how I would describe it, but it was the, the movie itself was really about these really, really specific characters. Well, um, bringing up the plot, um, I have it copy-pasted from Google in a document. <laughs> Living alone in the Oregon wilderness, a truffle hunter returns to Portland to find the person who stole his beloved pig. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> That's so vague. It's not like a summary. It's just like a... I don't know. Synopsis would probably even cover more. I don't know what the difference between those two is. Okay, well... That's so. That's what I want to talk about. So I just watched the trailer prior to to this session, and um, I noticed also in like a lot of the literature and articles about the movie, um, the trailers really make it seem like it's gonna be like a John Wick style or like a <laughs> Taken, um, but it's Nicolas Cage and he's trying to get back his pig. Really? Like they make it really gritty and they make it look like it's going to be more violent and more action-packed than it actually is okay there's like zero action it's a very emotional film yeah there was okay to be fair there was that one shot when they initially steal the pig and he gets domed and he yeah (laughs) which was pretty gnarly um i kind of like that there's also the random underground beating homeless people (laughs) yeah oh yeah (laughs) That was not relevant to the rest of the plot. Like, <laughs> Listen, they were trying to create a world. That's what I'm thinking. They were trying to create a world like in John Wick. You know, there's the whole underground world that normal people don't know about. Uh, they were trying to create that, but without like making it a series or like yeah. And I would argue as the resident uh, defender of this film, I think that that scene did have a purpose in that it sort of, made the it was the way for the audience to start to realize like oh this guy's like an actual like big name like he's not just some random dude living out in the forest like he has a reputation because he wrote his name on the board and everyone there immediately knew who he was i mean but we already had that when he goes and brings the guy like some food and he's like you used to mean something to people now you don't exist you don't exist you don't exist and he like repeats it like three times and he's like and then the, the other guy's like oh like how do you even know him and it's clear that like that guy's big and so then it's like hmm what's going on well yeah that gives you the hmm what's going on but then like there's the, the that fight scene underground is sort of like like oh he he really is a big deal it's not just this one guy it's like everybody knows his name I think overall, uh, the the lack of like that significance, like it doesn't come up again, really. It, it kind of goes, it plays to the overall themes and and like message of the story, right? So um, we can further discuss this, but what I got from it was that there was a lot of <laughs> of like preaching and philosophical talk about 
what is real, right? Mm-hmm. And then like a little bit on like materialism and being fake and not needing a reason to love something or to do something overall. Uh, what do you guys think about that? I want you to expand on the not needing a reason to love something or do something. Cause I think I know where you're getting that in the plot, but I want you to uh, be more specific. Yeah. So this um, I, I have to give, I think most of the credit to hope because we were, yeah, I was going to say that was mostly my idea. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and you can expand on this after I like introduce it, but while we were talking about the film afterwards and trying to pick out like what the meaning was overall, we kind of got to, that in the end, uh, and spoilers again, that it is revealed that Nicolas Cage's character doesn't actually need the pig to find truffles. He's able to use the trees. <laughs> saying it out loud, but he, he, he's able to find the truffles without the pig. So the pig, in a sense, doesn't serve any like purpose for him, like any, any instrumental purpose for him. And in reality, it's only... Um, if anything, like an emotional support, like he loves that pig just because, and there's no, there's no more elaborate reason. There's no behind the scenes significance, like, like throughout the film, they might, they hint at like, oh, he had something going on. Maybe it was like his former wife or a former lover or something. And she passed away or something. And maybe the pig is tied to her, but then at the end, we never get anything like that. It's literally just some random pig that he he cares for and that's the only reason he's trying to find it get it back all right yeah ultimately this idea came because dylan thought that the pig had to symbolize his wife or had to symbolize something um and then he was like unsatisfied at the end when the pig wasn't a symbol and we didn't hear anything more about the wife and i was like well he he just wanted the pig because like he loved the pig and that's it like that's all he needed he loved the pig so he went after it and it didn't need to be a symbol for his wife it didn't need to be a symbol for his grief about something else he just loved that pig and wanted it back and then it passed away and like yeah that was it <laughs> mm-hmm. um i want to add um in my research this is sort of a i guess one of the fun facts i i found um and I don't know if you two knew this, but apparently they don't use pigs anymore for truffle hunting. They use dogs, which is, <laughs> I mean, dogs are known for their sense of smell and stuff. Yeah, but they're used for everything. Give yeah. pigs I, something. <laughs> I actually thought prior that before, like f- figure finding this out, I had thought that um, dogs weren't able to find truffles i don't know why i thought this it must have been like a misconception or something but i thought like i knew that they use pigs and i thought it was for like a particular reason that dogs weren't able to do the job but um yeah apparently dogs are the truffle hunters these days and you know dogs are easier to handle so it makes sense Uh, (laughs) hope this is such a strange hill for you to die on um it's really not because like literally we use dogs for everything right what are pigs used to eat you know give pigs like some sort of way of living that's not to die you know this tied into mary's episode no (laughs) it's a whole separate thing bro like all we do with pigs maybe you make them like a show pig and you get them fat but like that's got to be miserable too you know 
Their pigs are very smart animals, and all we really do with them is kill them. They had truffles. A select few could graduate and become (laughs) truffle hunters, but now it's just dogs. You know, dogs took over their market, and what now? What what is there for pigs? I'm sure there's something, but I doubt there's much. (laughs) All right, fair enough. Well, that's a whole separate issue that we're not... (laughs) Um, So bringing it back to the film, I guess I want to touch, or I want to see if either of you have something to say on this before we move on to the next thing. But how did you guys feel about like the pacing of the film? Cause for me, um, as, as, as we mentioned, like there were some like philosophical discussions and I felt like that was really awkward in terms of the pacing because they would literally film the scene and the scene would just be them talking, but it would be completely out of context. And it'd be like Nicolas Cage or some like other character talking about how shit isn't real and, and you, why, why do you care about real stuff? You're so fake, whatever. I don't know. Yeah. Those ended up being some of my favorite scenes, though, because of how strange they were. Where it, it like really took you out of the movie for a second. And you were just kind of listening to Nicolas Cage, like, yeah, talking philosophy for like a couple of minutes. Yeah, it was um, it was always like it didn't flow into the conversation. It was like the kid was talking about how his mom passed away she didn't actually pass away but he lied it's fine and then Nicolas Cage was like this whole town is going to drown one day and the survivors are going to be left with nothing and it was just like out of nowhere like they the kid was having a completely separate conversation and Nicolas Cage was like that bridge is gonna fall and we're all gonna die and like I think the same thing happened when they go to the restaurant and I think this is where you really get to see some of their philosophical ideas is when he's telling the guy, like, you always wanted to open a pub, didn't you? Why are you making gourmet food? Do you like this? Well, what, you always talked about very specific dishes that you're going to make at your pub. And now what are you doing? You're not doing that. Um, and, like, <laughs> I think the cin- cinematography made this an even more awkward scene. Because it was just, like, close shots on the guy getting more and more uncomfortable. <laughs> but it, it was kind of, like almost wedged into the conversation to try and show what they wanted the movie to mean rather than like kind of happening naturally. (laughs) I don't know. Yeah, I agree. What do you think, Josie? Do you have any more thoughts on that? Um, no, just that I thought that they were fun. They were fun. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, that's the deal. If you're taking it seriously as a movie, then yeah, they kind of ruin certain, they, they ruin the pacing and they're really confusing. But if you're just going into this looking for, like, a good time, like, I thought those were really funny scenes. <laughs> yeah, I definitely think I enjoyed it um, overall. Like, it wasn't it wasn't a negative experience, a negative viewing experience. Yeah. Um, but I hadn't seen the trailer beforehand, so I'm glad I didn't do that. So I guess I would recommend not watching the trailer yeah. or going into it. Yeah, I yeah. would also make the recommendation, like, don't go see it in theaters unless you're relatively confident you'll have a similar experience where there's no one else there either that or um wait for it to come out to watch at home and then watch it with like a big group of people i think it would be a great movie for like a big movie night where everyone's just yelling at the screen being like what the hell is going on (laughs) yeah also the scene with the restaurant guy who (laughs) who wanted to open up a pub and then didn't it gave me the same vibe at the end as like legally blonde where she like pressures her into saying she killed like um her own father because he's like 
and what were you going to serve at that pub? And then the guy yells out the dishes and he's like, see, this dude did want a pub. <laughs> he doesn't want to be here. Because the whole time the guy like, well, I like it. People like it. He's like, and what were you going to serve? <laughs> yeah. And that's like the breaking point. <laughs> I love your reference of the Big Blonde specifically. Because you're right, that is a very cliche thing where it's like yeah. someone's trying to like wrench something out of somebody, like a confession or them to admit something. And then they finally like bursts out of them. But Legally Blonde is a, is such a great example, especially when trying to compare it with this movie. That's really funny. <laughs> well, uh, speaking of the restaurant, um, the next point I wanted to touch on was the name of the restaurant and what it is connected to. So as you two probably remember, the name of the restaurant was Eurydice, yeah. uh, named after the Greek uh, mythological, I guess. Well, she's not a hero, so she's like a a, a damsel <laughs> or a victim, a victim, a mythological victim. How about that? Sure. Um, from the story of Orpheus, I feel like most people know the story, but yeah, I guess yeah. Do you guys want to just jump into that? Like, explain the story. Um, yeah, or just like its significance in the film. Yeah, I actually, I'm glad you brought this up because you mentioned it briefly right after we saw it. And I thought it was actually a really interesting point that I totally could see. So like the whole deal with Orpheus and Eurydice, Hades, they are, Orpheus and Eurydice are in love, but then like Hades, the god of the underworld. um, There's different versions of the story. Some of them, it's like, oh, he falls in love with her and he brings her down to the underworld, effectively like killing her, right? There are other Mm -hmm. versions, he just gets like bitten by a snake and she dies. And then Orpheus goes down to he's like you know in love with this woman so he tries to go down to the underworld to save her and he's a musician so what he does is he plays uh music for Hades that is so beautiful that it convinces Hades to give Orpheus a chance to win her back so he's like you can walk her out of the underworld but you're not allowed to turn around and make sure that she's walking behind you or else she will die forever and he he makes it almost all the way up out of the underworld that he can't take it anymore and he has to turn around and she's lost forever. So that's the myth. And I do think that they totally reference that within the greater plot of this movie. Should I explain the movie or does someone else want to take it? (laughs) Yeah, okay. So I guess the question here is like, what's the equivalency? So I think, um, Josie, you seem to, to like that idea. I think yeah. I can see it too. I don't know. I, I feel like there might be multiple ways to take it, but I guess the most basic would be to assume that Nicolas Cage's character um, is Orpheus, right? And the yeah. pig is Eurydice? What do you think? Yeah. yeah, totally. Well, then in that case, does that mean that Nicolas Cage's character, which I feel like, do we do we know his name? I didn't write it down. Oh, um, it's like really important to the plot too. His name's Rob. <laughs> Rob something. Okay. Rob, the character Rob, played by Nicholas Cage. Um, I does this does this mean if it if it's one-to-one with uh the story of Orpheus, does that mean that somewhere in the movie Nicholas Cage did look back metaphorically? And if if so, like what was that point? Because I don't I can't like immediately think of anything that was like, oh shoot. He looked back and it was a huge fuck up, you know? <laughs> no, I actually think that's one of the things that they didn't like 
adapt into if we're, if we're calling this a version of the story of Orpheus and Eurydice, I think that's one of the things that they did not bring into it. And I would equate, because the whole deal is that he goes to the guy, the really big restaurant man, um, and convinces him, basically like cooks this incredible dish, which is his equivalent of like singing a beautiful song mm-hmm. that convinces him to tell him the truth about the pig which is that the pig died. Like the pig has been dead this entire time. And I think I can equate that to the original myth with that Orpheus was never going to be able to bring Eurydice out of the underworld. The whole point, like Hades knew that Orpheus wasn't going to be able to make it because Mm. of the weakness Mm -hmm. of man. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's sort of that futility um, of the journey. And Nicolas Cage's entire journey was futile because the pig was dead the entire time. Hmm. So that is my, that is how I I equate that particular plot point. Yeah. I really like that. And I think that ties back into what we were talking about, like the philosophy of the film about like what is real and what is reality. Right. Like Mm -hmm. I remember like at the, near the end, he has the talk with um, the, the entrepreneur kid, Amir, um, and, and he's like, if I didn't come out here, um, I could have believed that my pig was still alive. And then Amir is like, played by Alex Wolf. He's like, but that wouldn't have been the truth. That wouldn't have been reality. Anymore, right. Yeah. Yeah. Well then, um, I think, uh, we've covered most of what I wanted to cover. Is there anything else you guys wanted to, I still have like a few, like, fun facts and stuff we could do but um is there anything else you guys any other major topics or points um i don't know i guess hit the fun facts before we wrap it up all right so fun facts um this first one i read an article by eater and they were talking about food in the film so the restaurant and like all the the food was inspired by like um an actual portland guy who's like a a famous chef now i guess um gabriel rucker and he designed the dishes, um, which made up the parts, the part titles. Yeah. And he specifically, he was specifically asked not to use truffles in any of the dishes, even though he could have, um, <laughs> because the director was like, no, that's a little bit too, on, too much on the nose. Let's not do that. So, I appreciate that. Yeah. <laughs> So then to, to go over the dishes, um, part one was rustic mushroom part. Oh, okay. Um, when I read these out, say if you would be, if you would eat it or not. Okay. Uh, <laughs> first rustic mushroom part. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I would try it. I'm not a huge Part two was mom's French toast. That's, that's the first one. Yes, of course. Yeah. That's kind of a given. So not my mom's French toast. <laughs> Um, and deconstructed scallops. No, um, no, for the for the sole reason I'm vegetarian and do not eat fish. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, and then lastly, part three, and um, I can expand on this. Um, part three was called a bird, a bottle, and a salted baguette. And the dish that they pre- prepared was pigeon with foraged uh, chanterelle mushrooms and huckleberries. Mm-hmm. Uh, would you guys eat that? Um, once again, vegetarian. So unfortunately, no. 
<laughs> I don't know if I want to eat pigeon, to be honest with you. That like I this is actually referring back to my talk with Mary. There's some animals I can't like I wouldn't be able to eat their meat without picturing the animal itself. And I think pigeon is definitely one of those. Interesting. Because it's that much <laughs> from chicken. Like, like you don't picture a chicken when you eat chicken. I don't. But honestly, chicken is probably the worst meat you could have picked out. Because sometimes I get really grossed out eating chicken. Avoid mm-hmm. it a decent bit. I do um, that in Mary's episode. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I don't know. I had an experience with what you're describing, Hope, just yesterday when I went to an Italian restaurant and they, I got a seafood dish and they served squid, right? And the squid, most of the pieces were cut up to look like onion rings. Yeah. But I think, I don't know if they forgot or if it was on purpose. One of the pieces, I could still see the fins of the, squid, <laughs> the head fins. And I was like, damn, this makes me feel terrible. Jeez. The other day I went... And got Korean barbecue with Stephanie and she ordered octopus and it was like full, like, like baby octopus. And I, I, ah, I was so scary. I couldn't like, (laughs) and she ate all three and I was like, ah, and she didn't even say it tasted that good. And I was like, was it worth it then to make me have to look at that? Like (laughs) you cooking them? Because literally with Korean barbecue, you cook it right. And like you do the cooking. Oh my God. It was too much. Too much. <laughs> All right. Um, this will be the last fun fact I have, and then we can move on to the green Knight. Um, so for the film, and I, I thought it was CGI, but it was apparently a real pig. Okay. And it wasn't like. You thought the pig was CGI. It, uh, I mean, the pig looked really cute, but like it was, it just. I thought it was. I thought it was fake. I'm gonna be. Wasn't honest. doing any stunts yeah. or anything. It's so much cheaper just to get a pig. <laughs> okay, you know when you put it that way, that makes more sense logically. But at the time, <laughs> I was like, "Man, CGI's come so far. That pig. <laughs> that pig looks great. Um, right. It was really cute. Yeah, um, but it wasn't. It wasn't a trained pig. It wasn't like like a stunt a stunt pig that they <laughs> use in movies. It was just some random pig they literally found on a farm and. I, I discovered this right before we started the session from watching a video. It was too expensive to actually hire a trained pig. So they just went to a farm and they were like, hey, that pig looks cute. Do you want to be in the, the video? And the pig was like, Boink. and then they, they got the pig. Um, her name is Brandy. Aww. And apparently she was a bit of a diva. She would only obey commands if you gave her food, <laughs> like immediately in the scene. Um, and that's why he kept feeding her and all the she would only respond to food is what (laughs) the cast said um yeah so that's that's that was the the last fun fact I thought that was pretty cute it is pretty cute well uh now we will move on to the green knight um spoilers for that uh I feel like that's the given I've said it three times now I will read the synopsis, and then since since only Hope and I saw this, um, Josie, you're just tagging along, and you're gonna you can like ask questions, you can yeah. comment on what's going on. Um, you can even pretend you saw this scene and make comments. Yeah, that'd be great. That'd be the ideal, Josie. If you if you pretended you saw. Perfect. I'm I'm keeping I'm keeping this podcast on brand by having no context for this movie. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right. So uh, according to Google, the synopsis is. 
King Arthur's headstrong nephew embarks on a daring quest to confront the Green Knight, a mysterious giant who appears at Camelot. Risking his head, he sets off on an epic adventure to prove himself before his family and court. All right. So based off the description, I'm picturing like the jolly green giant. (laughs) (laughs) He was a a bit more um, rugged. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. To give you a slightly better summary, um, this kid goes to like brothels every night. Um, He's just kind of like a, he's there. His mom's a witch. You find that out pretty early on. She's pretty witchy. His his uncle, his mom's brother, is King Arthur. And so he goes to this Christmas party. His mom doesn't attend because she's off doing witchy stuff. Uh, and King Arthur sits him by his side and he's like, yo, you're my own flesh and blood, but I ain't never talked to you before. <laughs> um, so what you like? And he's like, I, uh, I ain't got nothing. <laughs> he's, like, he's like, do you have any stories to tell? And he's like, I have no stories to tell. And then the queen's like, you have no stories to tell yet. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyways, his mom summons up this dude who comes marching in. He's basically a tree. Uh, and he's like, hello, anybody want to fight me? Uh, if you do, uh, any blow you deal to me, uh, I'll deal to you in a year's time. And so, uh, of course, the nephew's like, hey, I want to do that. Let's do that. <laughs> um, and so then so then the nephew cuts off his head. Oh. For a whole year, he sits in anxiety, waiting to go on this journey to see if his own head will be cut off. Yeah, so, well, he's not just sitting around for the full year. He's still acting the same and going to brothels and wasting away and drinking and stuff. Um, yeah. So this is much less merrily though. Yeah. So this has been described anything. as a coming of age story, um, which I, I, I can see that. Um, I didn't think it was going to be a coming of age story going into it, but yeah, I definitely see that. It's based on the, a poem written by unknown an unknown author and there's only one copy of the poem, like the original copy. There's only one of it in existence. Um, wow. And he is a part, the nephew is a part of the round table, but this is sort of like the story of how he got onto the round table. Um, like, so before he was just some, some kid, he just happened to be related to King Arthur, but then he goes on this adventure and he gains a seat at the, the green table. Um, yeah. His round name. table. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Did I say the green table? His his name is Sir. Okay, okay. Here's the pronunciations are debated. So the main two, you can either say um Gawain or Gawain. And it's pretty- How did they pronounce it in the movie. They they use three pronunciations. Oh. Um it's spelled G-A-W-A-I-N, but the three pronunciations are uh Gawain, Gawain, or um Garwin, <laughs> which is how <laughs> one of only one character in the film pronounces it. Um and they just let him do that because they were like, yeah, that seems that seems um that seems fun. I was really confused every time he said it that way. 
I kind of like garrowing because it's 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 it gives it a good emphasis. But yeah, that's probably the least correct <laughs> uh, interpretation of how to pronounce it. So um, yeah, hope. What are your uh, like overall thoughts? Like, what would you rate it? Um, stuff like that. So I actually really enjoyed this movie. I know it's definitely not everyone's cup of tea. Like I know, for example, my dad would probably fall asleep watching it. Um, but I would give it like a seven or eight. So I really liked it. Um, oh, explaining why. Uh, it was just uh, fun. I would also rate it higher than Pig. Um, I think it was just more cohesive as a story. And I appreciated that. I, I think I just echo you probably seven or eight maybe like a 7.5. Like it's definitely not the best film I've ever seen. I wasn't like astounded and I was a little disappointed um, at parts, but overall it was a good film. Um, mm-hmm. Josie, what would you rate this film? <laughs> hmm. I think uh, I found it confusing. Mm-hmm. So based on that, I would give it, I would give it a four. <laughs> With the expectation that my rating will increase when I actually see this movie. So I guess um, the first thing the first thing I wanted to talk about, about was the cinematography, um, like specifically compared to Pig, right? Because this is what really stood out to me when watching it. And that was like the first thing I came away like thinking about. It has a lot more variety in shots just in general. Like I feel like Pig, um, stylistically, they wanted to go for the, the tighter shots, the close-ups, and that's like how they wanted the entire film to be. Um, but but the Green Knight is definitely more like traditional Hollywood variety of shots. One thing that did stand out to me, um, they did two or three um, 360 degree panning shots where they would start at a point focused on something like, for example, on uh, Sir Garwin, Garwin. Um, and then they would slowly pan to the right, the full 360 degrees back to him, but where he used to be, they would replace it. And this is a direct spoiler. They, re- they replaced it with like a skeleton, like presumably his rotted dead body, right? Yeah. His bones. And then they would pan all the way back to the left, back to the, the actual him, um, as if it was sort of like a in the future, like hypothetical, right? And they would show him again and they'd be like, oh shoot, this is what could happen to you if you don't do anything. So you better get a move on. Um, yeah. And so while that was cool, they were, it was very slow. Yeah, it was kind of a long, long shot. Yeah, it was interesting, but it definitely stood out. I think one thing I really liked is how they played with light in a lot of the scenes and in like the shoots, like they made a lot of them kind of dim and almost like you had to really focus on where the light was focused. Like, especially when the green knight first comes in, um, there were like candles lit up around the table, but all of them shut off. And so you just have this light coming from this like window at the ceiling that just shines down onto where the green knight slowly steps forward and all the knights are in the shadow. And it, like even um, guard wind or whatever it is like comes <laughs> through and he has to step into the light to do the battle, um, which I thought was really interesting. And there are other times with like when he's being painted and he's forced to stand by the light and most of it's in darkness um, and even like the one girl literally paints like in like a really weird way with light. So I, I thought that was kind of interesting. Yeah, it, just overall, it was it was pretty it was pretty nice to look at. So the next thing I wanted to talk about was the use um, and decision of 
having actors, the same actors in different character roles um, throughout the film. But so basically, besides the main character played by Dev Patel um, and, and also the king and like some other characters, a lot of the supporting cast were used in two prominent roles. Um, sort of like when you watch Hamilton and the guy play, uh, plays both his best friend and then later his son. Yeah. It's like that. So I thought that was interesting. Um, Hope, do you, like, what did you think about that? And then, like, was there any greater significance to that decision? I think the the one that stood out to me the most was obviously, like, his lover back home in the castle and then the random dude's, like, wife who's just constantly trying to entice him. That was Alicia Vikander. Yes. I was just going to say, since they were both somewhat, like, his love interests, they also kind of had similar things where they were trying to protect him. But, like, in one, it was, like, a little bell that was kind of she gave to him. Um, And then the other was almost, like, she was almost trying to see, like, how much of a wimp he was. Like, would he take this belt? And she's like, you're no knight. Versus the other girl who was telling him, like, yeah, he's silly for going because he might die. But ultimately, she gives him a belt to, like, protect him. But it doesn't really have significance. But the one girl gives her a belt, and it's to, like, try and save his life. And it uses witchcraft. But it's not really so much as a gift because, like, it's an exchange for something else, you know? I thought that was an interesting contrast. Yeah, the well, not the not so much the bell. Bell probably had more symbolic, like symbolic importance, but the sash itself is kind of more integral to the plot, and yeah. it all plays out. Um, there's, yeah, I agree. There, there's definitely a contrast between characters. Um, I I, I kind of like that. Um, it was, I think it was done well because actually when I was watching it. I didn't even second guess like that they were using the same characters multiple times. Like I would see a new character and I would, my brain would be like, yeah, that's a new character. Um, the face looks similar to the other character, but they're not the same character. So like there wasn't any confusion necessarily. Um, I think describing it makes it more confusing, but <laughs> like, I feel like there's more significance to that and I'm just blanking right now. Um, so I just gonna, I'm going to throw it to Josie. Um, Josie, what do you think about, using multiple characters for different roles throughout the film? Um, I think it's a really interesting choice that I, I would love to hear what the uh, director's like intent was behind it. Because, you know, you can, you can sit here and, and speculate, but there are a bunch of different reasons why someone might choose to do that. And for a big budget movie like this, I, like, it gets a little more specific. So I would really enjoy watching it and then like looking up some sort of interview. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess another question, a follow-up question to that. Do you think that this kind of decision, um, like this technique could be applied to other films um, that you've seen, Josie? Or do you feel like it requires a very specific handling for it to come off in like a useful or appropriate way? Um, I think I think yes to both of those. I think that you're absolutely right because it can be done poorly. Like it's really easy to imagine 
a movie where if you use the same actor for multiple characters, it just confuses your audience. Um, and it takes away from the, the story. You can use that to your advantage and be like, I want to confuse my audience. I want them to be a little unclear about what's happening. If it's going to be, I don't know, a little more of like an avant-garde kind of film. But um, I do think there are totally, I don't off the top of my head, it would be difficult because I'm not a director. Um, but I'm sure there are movies that I've seen that it would add an, an extra interesting detail if they had that sort of double casting. Yeah, absolutely. As we mentioned, um, Alicia Vikander played the, she was a brothel. Do I call her a wench? Um, brothel. No. <laughs> but she only, I on, I think she only slept with him though. Like, I think he had pretty much just like bought her time. Uh, yeah. At one point she's like, aren't you going to make me your lady? And he's like, I can give you all the gold you want. And she's like, I already have your gold. If if that's if that's what you want to go with, hope. No, I'm pretty sure she only because <laughs> like spoiler, she gets pregnant with his child. No one ever questions that it's not his child. Like that kid immediately gets a crown on its head, you know? Okay, that's true, I guess. Um also there was a character played by Aaron Kellyman. Um, I don't think I've ever seen any of her other films. Um, she played a ghost. Oh, actually, she's in uh, Falcon and the Winter Soldier, I, which I haven't seen, but I did see like some trailer scenes where she was in it. And apparently she's also in the movie adaptation of Les Mis. So that's interesting. Oh, who did she play in that? Uh, Ebony? No. Yes? Yes. Well, she's pretty young, so she had to have been... She was... Yeah, yeah, yeah. She was Ebony. Yep. Oh, okay. I know who you're talking about. Most did she play aside from the ghost? She was the the woman, the the lady that uh, Sir Guy ended up marrying in like the oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah. in like the future <laughs> hypothetical scenario. You know, I thought I had a handle on what the plot was until you guys kept talking about it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, see, yeah. the plot that I told you pretty much was like the beginning, and then I didn't describe any of the rest of the movie. <laughs> purposefully did not describe the rest of the movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll get into more of that in a bit. Um, but before that, I want the next thing I want to talk about is the ending. So the ending is purposefully ambiguous. As always. <laughs> throwing it to you. Um, what I kind of took away from this movie was that it's all about, like, paths that you lived or could have lived, which I think is, like, the major takeaway. Like, even you were talking about that really long kind of it went a little too long scene that you didn't like um, the cinematography of because like it goes 360 shows a skeleton and then goes back. Like in that instance, he could have just sat there and rotted, but instead he didn't, or at least like in the path that we were following, he didn't. So I think that was like one instance, like the very first instance of a path that he could have followed that he didn't. And then the end is obviously that because you see him run away, you see him become King and you see him, like the crown being taken from him because he's a shitty king. And that's another path he could have led if he was a coward, but he went back and pretended that he wasn't. And then he was miserable for the rest of his life. Um, Another path is like, if he just stayed there and the knight cuts off his head. And I feel like that's a really good, like, I don't know, almost flashback because like a lot of these stories, 
even though this is like a written story and there's only one copy, were mostly probably retold by voice to other people. Like they're probably orally retold throughout generations. And obviously we've all played Whisper down the lane. Like things change and stories morph and um, people get told different stories. So I thought that was like one really nice reflection on it that like it always had these like almost different pathways of how the story could have gone and how he could have like died or whatever. But like, you know, same as like an oral retelling where there's different versions. Josie, were you going to ask something? No, I was just, I was, I was uh, making a noise of, of uh, realization when, when Hope was like, <laughs> the um, oral retellings always have different endings and different plot lines and that's what it could have been. Though thinking about that, there is also like, as you mentioned, there's the one written copy of it. So I don't know that they would want to, you know, reference a like an orally told like folktale or or legend like that because they're basing it off of this written account. But again, I've not seen the movie, so my opinion <laughs> does not matter much. All right, so that's the perfect segue into comparing the movie adaptation to the original poem. Mm. So I there's a lot of there's a there's a lot to cover on. So first off, the original poem was a lot more uh, classically heroic, like in the in the style of, you know, Arthurian tales um, where the knights go off and they do something heroic and they reflect their virtues and their chivalry, you know, all of that. So in the poem, it says like, oh, he had multiple encounters along the way. He did heroic deeds. But the poem itself only explicitly details one encounter in the castle, which we've talked about where the ca- the castle's the lady of the castle tries to like seduce him and the Lord of the castle makes a deal with him. So the deal is um, you can rest here. You're not that far away from your destination. You can stay here and rest and recover. I will go out into the forest. I will hunt every day. Whatever I bring back will be yours. But in exchange, whatever you happen to receive in the castle, you will pay back to me the same amount. Okay, so that's the deal. It's it's purposely worded that way. You know, it's already when I heard it the first time in the movie, I was like, oh, I know what's going to happen. Hope didn't didn't see it coming, but but I kind of sensed it. So the lady of the castle tries to seduce him. They go through the whole thing. He refuses her for like the first two or three days. But then ultimately, he kind of is forced to give in sort of like she ends up kissing him a few times. And at the end of his stay, the Lord of the castle is like, hey, I know you've been receiving some stuff. Where's my payment? And he and Sir Gawain kisses the Lord of the castle. And in the, in the film, it's, it's more explicit than that, that the Lord of the castle is sort of gay um, or he is gay. <laughs> like he, he's into Sir Gawain. But in the poem, obviously, they didn't, you know, different times. Um, but but that that's the only section of the of his quest that's actually explicitly detailed in the poem. Okay. There are a few other things in the movie that he did, because obviously the movie can't just be that short, right? The poem's relatively short. Um, but in the movie, he does mm-hmm. some other things, which we won't go into, which are not mentioned in the poem at all. So that's that's the first like main difference. 
Okay, so to throw it to, to Ho, what did you think about the other sections of the film besides what I just talked about, like with the, the castle and almost reaching its destination? What did you, did you like the, the one with the, the bandits? Did you like the, the ghost story one? Um, yeah, what were your thoughts on those? I liked them. I thought it made it more like an epic tale. He's like going on a bunch of little quests on his way to this big quest. And he's like, <laughs> especially since like, I feel like most movies nowadays, like it's all really linear and everything has to mean something. And obviously they did because they were sort of relevant to his overall quest. Like he lost things, then he gained them back. But it was just my, my opinion. <laughs> I also forgot to mention that he encounters giants, like literal giants um, along the way, which was, you know, I guess it was cool, but it was also underwhelming because it was, you just saw them and then nothing really happened with them. You know, like they weren't integral to the story. Um, Josie, what do you think about giants? Uh, I don't know. It's an odd thing for me to have a a preconceived opinion about. (laughs) I think they're cool. It'd be sweet if I if I saw one. I'd be like, "Hey, that's a giant." <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um. So okay, and now coming back to the ending of the poem, the original poem. How it ends is that Sir Gaiwin goes there. He he accepts his fate. He's like, "Okay, I'm ready to have my head cut off." Then the Green Knight reveals himself to be actually his mentor. Um, which we we don't we don't meet his mentor in the film, but in the poem or in like the history, he has a mentor. And the mentor was just like, ha ha ha, I tricked you. This was all a test to test your virtue. And you kind of failed, but but you also pass. You're you pass. And so they they laugh about it. Um, and then he becomes a knight of the round table, and his like trait his defining trait is honesty and also like living with your shame because the sash um he got it through like kind of sketchy means you know he was he was gonna use it to to get out of his to get out of his punishments or out of the game um but but at the end he he kind of comes to terms with himself and he he reveals the truth and so he passes the test because he was honest and virtuous overall um hope what do you think about that and how the movie handled it so obviously the movie was slightly grittier than that (laughs) because like it doesn't seem like he's able to live with his shame because you have like the fox who's he's like no i'm brave and the fox is like well the sash you're wearing says you're not josie for your context um, if he's wearing the sash, it means he cannot be struck down. Like anyone who wears the sash cannot be struck down. So if he's wearing the sash, his head can't be chopped off. And so like, he's like, no, I'm brave. I'm going to face the green knight. And like this fox is like, the green knight's going to kill you. He's like, it's fine. I'm brave. I'll do it. And the fox is like, well, I don't know about that, bro. Cause you still got that sash on. So anyways, uh, he doesn't ever seem to really come to terms with it because the whole time he's with the green knight, like he doesn't take it off. He always squirms away when the dude's trying to get chopping. And it's like, it's not till the very, like he even runs away in one of the scenes. 
And then obviously we cut back and he's like, wait, you know what? Maybe he pictured his whole life if he did run away and he realized he'd be king, but then he'd be a, a fake and I don't know, he'd be terrible or something. Or maybe that's his anxiety if he ran away. And so he takes off the sash and he's like, okay, I'm ready. But it doesn't seem like he ever really comes to peace with it. Or maybe the whole journey, he's trying to come to peace with it. And it's not until like the very end that he's able to. But I feel like the the poems, obviously, they couldn't have killed him because it's a story of him becoming a knight. But it seems like a cop-out that his mentor was just like, ah, you pass, yo, no game for you, even though you said you'd do this game. <laughs> hmm. I'm deeply confused um, at the, the uh, structure, the, the plot line at this point. I don't think I can comment further at this, at this juncture. Okay, well, I have a, a question prepared for you, Josie. So if, assuming you want to be a knight, Josie, okay, and you, you want to be part of the round table, would you agree to a challenge where whatever you do to someone they can do back to you in a year what do you think um i don't it sounds like off the bat it sounds so much like a trick right like that is like the blueprint of every single like legend and myth where someone is like oh i got this and then it's not what they're expecting so i don't think i would because i'd be like you're gonna you're gonna pull something you're gonna pull, pull a fast one <laughs> yes okay but what if you were forced to accept like what if they were like we've got your family you have to do something to to this guy mm-hmm. whatever you do to this guy he'll do back to you and it has to be like like you, ha- you have a sword in your hand okay so you, you gotta do so something i can't just like give my handshake no you can't it has to be something with the sword um Okay, I guess the, the explicit wording is you have to deal him a blow, which he can return to you in a year. Well, I mean, my cop-out answer is I give him a haircut. My, <laughs> my, my real answer that I think most people would probably say is, like, cut off, like, a finger or a toe or something. Like, like really, like, not going to miss it, like, but it still counts as a blow. I mean, in the, in the movie itself, I... F- feel like Gawain, Garwin, he expects that it's going to be like a fight and he has to try and deal him a blow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And once he's able to, like, that's what it is. But he wasn't expecting the Green Knight to put all of his weapons down and like extend his arms to him. And then I guess he had the thought where he's like, oh, if I kill him now that I, that I the deal is done. Yeah, probably, most likely. Okay, so Hope mentioned earlier there was like a fox companion um, that was antagonizing him at the end. So in the movie, another difference from the poem is that his mother, um, who Hope mentioned earlier, the mother is the half-sister of King Arthur. She's a witch. The movie is driven a lot more in terms of plot and like what happens by the mother. Like the mother seems to be the puppet master, like pulling all the strings with her witchcraft um, and setting up things as a test for her son. Whereas in the poem, the mother is not actually the witch, um, as far as I can 
like as far as my reach research goes, which wasn't very deep in the poem, the witch is like just on just a separate character. Like it's not the witch isn't related to any of them. She's a she's a well-known witch. It is Morgan Le Fay, but the 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 witch is not like related. Um, why did I want to bring this up? <laughs> um, okay, so the whole thing is is like I mentioned before, a coming of age story, and it's kind of set up by the mother. Um, Hope, what did you think about the mother's character um, being sort of the antagonist, like the hidden antagonist of the film, and like setting everything up? I, I don't know. She was just kind of like there. And obviously you were like, hmm, why is she doing this? Like, I couldn't tell if she wanted it to be a test for her son or if like she was just sending the green knight in there for anyone to challenge. Obviously, it makes more sense if it was a test for her son. But I was like, why would she wish that her son could like potentially die? Mm-hmm. Um, so I was honestly a little confused by her role. Yeah, she seemed indifferent to whether her son died or not. Yeah. But I, from what I can tell, she it was intended for her, like a, a coming of age for her son, be, like a test, because she was kind of like looking at like his debauchery and he was like, she was like, wow, this, this guy, my son is just a real, a real shame, like a real disappointment. <laughs> um, and she was, and she... She knew that um, because of the bloodline that once King Arthur died, she would have someone on the throne, like, and she could be in the background, you know, doing whatever she wanted, right? So it's sort of like a power move for her. <laughs> All right, final, final talking point, um, and then we can wrap it up. So the director, David Lowry, obviously the source material is like its own thing, but in his adaptation, he intended for the ending to be explicit. If you Google it, you'll find it. He, he intended for it to be explicit that Guywin gets his head chopped off at the very end. And that was supposed to be a good thing because it avoids the montage of the terrible war-torn future that we get to see when he runs away. Mm-hmm. Uh, but instead, he made it ambiguous by cutting to black. So... Um, I know we kind of talked on this earlier, but I'm in the camp that, like, even knowing the director's intentions, I feel like we could view it as he does not die in the movie universe because, you know, you could take the cop out where it's like, oh, it's a metaphorical death. He's killing his past self that was, like, shameful and, and or, or shameless, I guess, um, and he he was he was giving into his vices and his desires, and now he's going to turn over a new leaf and he's going to be a new person. But I feel like it's too hopeful to think that he's going to turn over a new leaf and be a new person, even when he's with the Lord of the House and all that. the The Lord's like, "So why why are you doing this?" And like, doesn't he say like for honor? Yeah, but and- he seems really confused and the. Lord is like so are you asking me that (laughs) like are you sure um and so you know he doesn't even seem sure like he thinks that doing this is gonna make him honorable but almost the lord of the house almost doesn't believe it he's like so that's all you have to do to be honorable it's this one thing and suddenly you'll be honorable 
because it's not true. Doing this one thing isn't going to change him as a person. It's not going to turn over a new leaf. He's still going to be who he is, even if he does go through this experience and live. So mm-hmm. I, I don't know. Yeah, it's it's almost as if like Lowry's kind of critiquing all of these stories um, where it's like a main character going on a quest and suddenly they change, right? It's It's almost saying like, it's not, you're not going to become a better person just because you go on some heroic adventure, right? You are still you at the end of it. And whether or not you change is kind of up to you. So I, I definitely understand, like, it's it's a more gritty, it's a more realistic take on it where, he, as, as I mentioned, it's kind of intended that he fails the quest, so to speak. He doesn't really change as a character. He doesn't grow as a person. He doesn't mature, really, at least not that we see um, throughout the film. And and so in that sense, he perhaps he should have his head chopped off at the end. Um, but my weak evidence to defend that he survives, okay, my weak evidence. During the scene where the Green Knight comes in initially, he asks for a sword and his uncle gives him Excalibur, okay? Now, I'm not too familiar with the details of how this whole thing works. When whoever wields Excalibur has the right, supposedly, to be the ruler of England, based on, like, the tales and stuff. So, since he wielded Excalibur, even if it was just for that one chopping the Green Knight's head off, he should, theoretically, be fated to be the next ruler of England. So, I think he survives. What do you think, Hope? Uh, sure, if you say so. I disagree. <laughs> uh, Josie, what do you think about, like, the, the almost cliched, like, heroic tale of people kind of changing after going on a quest? Like, what do you think are the merits to that, and do you think it's realistic in general? I don't know. I think it's, it's, um, I think it's tough to ask if it's realistic, because no, it's not. Because these situations that they're put in that force them to grow aren't realistic. They're like fantasy, like adventure situations that people don't get put through. So it's difficult to say as a regular person going through regular person life um, that like whether or not going through those sort of trials and tribulations would helps would like make someone grow as a person. You know, I don't think you can I don't think you can judge it off whether or not it's realistic. Yeah, I mean, his journey technically lasts, like, over the course of, not a year, because he wastes most of the year, but, like, a week, right? Right, Hope? Um, like he, yeah. Like, a week early, um, before Christmas, which is the day that, that um, like, the fated day that he's supposed to meet the Green Knight. Um, I feel like it was more than a week, but it definitely wasn't longer than, like, three weeks. <laughs> yeah, it was, like, maybe 10 days or something like that. I don't know. Because he got to the, the castle where they said it was, like, a day's ride away, five he, days before Christmas. Yeah, yeah. He was really early. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, so, like, obviously, you're probably not going to change over the course of 10 days. But I feel like it's not necessarily unrealistic, right? Like, if you go through a traumatic experience, you're probably going to change. Like, anyone would probably change. Yeah. So, if you think about it, he's this sheltered, spoiled nephew royal nephew he spends his all day every day in in the brothel 
and drinking. And he's never done anything heroic, but he, he dreams of being a knight. And then he gets sent out on this quest, right? Where supposedly, basically he's being sent to his death as far as he knows, because he chopped the guy's head off. The guy's going to chop his head off. As a normal human being, you can't survive very long with your head chopped. So he travels out and then he has to go to his death. So like, that's a lot to happen to this teenager. I'd call that traumatizing, that whole ordeal. Yeah, but I guess it's not like character growth. It's more like, yeah, just trauma. <laughs> just <laughs> trauma. Well, uh, that was it for the special edition of <laughs> Coming In Without Context, episode 12. And I think we'll have another set of three episodes after this with another guest. Um, but uh, we'll see how that goes. And then after that, we're not sure because we'll be abroad and I don't know if I'll be able to edit when I'm abroad. So yeah, thanks for listening. This has been coming in without context. Uh, thank you, Josie, for, for staying with us for the majority of it, not knowing what we're talking about at all. <laughs> yeah. I'll be honest. I was kind of fading there for like the last couple of minutes, <laughs> but yeah, it was fun. Yeah. And uh, thanks. Did I already say thanks? Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. <laughs>